Grace to you in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you've not already done so, I'd like to invite you to join me in Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33 and one or two introductory statements uh, before diving right into this historical sermon from Gilbert Tennant. Uh, one is um, I intend to do, <clears throat> this is not a, as Pastor Jordan mentioned earlier, today's not a dramatization, and uh, I intend to do what uh, God is warning the watchman to do in Ezekiel chapter 33. A faithful watchman warns the people when wrath is coming, and doesn't just merely warn them of the wrath that's before them, but gives them a very clear admonition to turn to the only one who can save them from this wrath, and that's to turn to Jesus Christ. So I intend to do that, though these are not my words, uh, I intend to do that with help from the Lord today, is to be a faithful watchman to warn you. And though Tennant's not a Puritan, uh, obviously uh, these great awakening pastors were influenced through Puritan preaching, uh, they had no problem with leaving people um, hanging to contemplate. And uh, there's debates back and forth as to whether or not that is an appropriate use of preaching. Should you always offer hope in every sermon? Or in this case, is it okay to leave a person with a stark reality that they have to reckon before God what God has to say about the true nature of their, of their soul. So, Ezekiel chapter 33, I'll begin reading in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, if I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on himself. But had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword uh, comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel, so you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. Now as for you, son of man, Say to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken, saying, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? 
Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. God, we do pray that you would help us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. These words contain an important entreaty in which the following particulars must be noted. There are four major points in this sermon. The author, the object, the matter, and the mode. And it's really the last two points, the matter which have five statements under it and the mode which have three statements on it that we'll spend a majority of our time. But the first is the author of this entreaty who is the ever-blessed God. He it is who invites sinners to turn from the evil of their ways. His authority over us is absolute and unquestionable. Having made us by His power, to Him we are under infinite obligation in point of reason and gratitude because of His supreme eminence and perfection and the innumerable, invaluable, and unmerited benefits we have received from Him, among which this entreaty is one which is calculated to promote not His, but our benefit. For our goodness does not extend to Him, nor is it any gain to God that we are righteous. Second, is the object of this entreaty is more immediately and expressly, as stated here in Ezekiel 33, the house of Israel. But indirectly, and virtually all unregenerate persons of every age and nation. Romans 15, 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Though the people of Israel professed God's name and were outwardly devoted to His service, yet many of them had a temper and conduct very unsuitable thereto, and alas, this is the woeful case of many of us. So he's stating, clearly, we're no different than Israel. Point number three, the matter of this entreaty, is that they would turn from their evil ways. The term is metaphorical and alludes to the posture of the body when it is the very reverse of what it should be and therefore serves to represent our apostasy from God as well as the necessity of our endeavors after a change and the usefulness of those endeavors to obtain it. By our revolt from the allegiance due to our Creator and Sovereign, we have become totally degenerate. And here marks five statements under the matter of this entreaty. One is, the unconverted are destitute of all spiritual good. There is no principle of it in us. In my flesh, says the Apostle from Romans 7:18, dwelleth no good thing. Now Christ assures us that he that is born of the flesh is flesh, from John 3, 6. That is, corrupted. For there our Lord opposes flesh to spirit. Further, the God of truth declares that the natural man is not sick and weak, as some tell us, but dead. Hence, conversion is said to be a quickening or resurrection from the dead. 
You hath He quickened, says the Apostle to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 1, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Elsewhere, this blessed change is compared to the creation of the world in chapter 2, verse 10 of Ephesians. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, in a dead man, there is not the least spark of life, nor was there matter before creation. The second point under the matter of this entreaty. The unconverted are ignorant of all spiritual good. We are born stone blind as well as stark dead. You say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. This is from Revelation 3.17. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because he is spiritually darkened. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Natural persons are the blind people that have eyes who call good evil and evil good. The light that is in them is darkness, and hence they are called darkness in the very abstract as if they were wholly made up of it. For they were sometimes darkness. Ephesians 5.8 In this thick Egyptian darkness, they know not what they are doing, nor where they are going, and are every moment in danger of stumbling into death and ruin before they are aware, and yet poor, miserable souls, they imagine they are something when indeed they are nothing. And that they know something, whereas they know nothing as they ought and as they must if they are ever to be saved. Their haughtiness must be pulled down and they made to know to their sorrow that they are fools. Else, they will never be wise. The third statement under the matter of this entreaty. The unconverted are utterly impotent and unable to do any natural good. In other words, they cannot do what is pleasing to God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God, but this faith natural men do not have. It was Jesus who said in John 15, 5, Without me, you can do nothing. This is the case of all the unregenerate. They have no vital union with Christ by faith. Otherwise, their state and temper would be changed. The same point of truth the apostle confirms in Romans 5, 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Seeing all the unconverted are ungodly persons and without strength. And again, seeing that conversion is a quickening of the dead, a new creation, then it unavoidably follows that natural men and women can no more do spiritual good than a dead man can break open his coffin and walk. Or that nothing can create a world. Give me lead to add the words of our Savior from Matthew 7, 18, that a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. Of thorns do not gather figs, nor a bramble bush gather they grapes. What Christ speaks in these verses evidently relates to the state of the person. A person is a good tree in the sense of our Savior when he is justified and converted 
For then he is reconciled to God and has a good principle of action communicated to him. Being thus made a friend of God and having a holy principle, whatever he does agreeable to the divine law is pleasing to God through Christ. Before his conversion, every man is an enemy to God, a dead man, a corrupt tree, a thorn, a bramble bush, a thistle, and therefore cannot bring forth good fruits any more than these can bring forth grapes and figs. Natural people are puffed up with the conceit of their power as well as of their wisdom. They think they can do great matters, and upon this false notion, they sleep in their sins. They secretly imagine that they can do something at any time that shall make their salvation certain, and therefore, they are easy about the matter. They think the Almighty would be very severe if He would reject such a good sort of people as they are and such pious works as they do. But pray remember, it is not of Him that will, nor Him that, have, that runneth, but of God that shows mercy. This is Romans 9, 16. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before conversion, your works are dead works. Your grapes are wild grapes. You are enemies to God. You are dead people. You are wicked. Therefore, all you do is abomination. Even your very prayers. You deserve damnation for the very best thing you ever did in your whole life. There is a dreadful blasphemy in all your doings, for you do nothing for God's sake, but for your own. Thus you make yourself your last end and chief good, and of consequence, your own God. What horrible blasphemy. And yet upon these filthy and blasphemous works, you venture your eternal all. How shocking. I pray that you're not offended. I speak nothing but the very truth and love with design to drive you from a foundation that will, be, that will infallibly ruin you if you abide by it and to shut you up to Christ who is the only door of hope. But I know it is a tender point I speak upon. Graceless sinners are as fond of dead works and make gods of them as much as the poor man did his images. Therefore, when they are taken away in respect to dependence upon them, they are apt to complain as he did you have taken away my gods, which I made, and what have I more? From Judges 18.24. Can it be that you, no more, you have no more to trust than lifeless works? Have you no experimental religion, no application of the law or gospel, no faith in the dear Redeemer that purifies the heart and works by love? Nothing but to do, do in your blind, dread, dry, dead manner? Surely it is a kindness to you to take away that false prop, that Egyptian reed, which if you continue to depend upon it, will mortally stab you to the heart. It is this very thing which keeps you from being humbled and from believing in Jesus, just like the wicked Jews, who had a zeal, but not according to knowledge. For going about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Romans 10, 1-3. Why, sinners, do you thus go to the law for relief. 
It is an administration of death, a letter that kills. It condemns to eternal death all that do not fulfill it perfectly and yet depend upon obedience to it for justification in part or in the whole. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. By the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. This is James 2, Galatians 3, Romans 3, Galatians 2. The law which was ordained to life, which in the case of perfect obedience, was designed to procure eternal life upon that condition, sentences him that breaks it to death. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. For if the case were so, there would have been no need of his death, but the law was weak through the flesh, that is, unable to justify us by reason of our corruption. Someone else may object, you preach despair. True. But not of the mercy of God through a Redeemer by faith, but of justification by the works of the law. This is necessary if true faith in Christ is to exist. We must, through the law, become dead to the law in that respect. Divorced from the law as a husband before we are to be married to Christ. Till we are slain by the law, we will not wholly depend upon the mediator. And yet, without this, there is no salvation. We cannot have mercy through a mediator unless we buy without money. This is impossible while we depend upon the law in any degree. You cannot build a house partly upon a rock and partly upon sand. The apostle speaks fully to this in Galatians 5.4. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Those who do depend in the least degree upon obedience to the law turn their backs upon Christ and His grace and are debtors to the whole law and therefore Christ shall profit them nothing. It is again objected that I disparage good works and discourage people from doing them. My answer to this is, it is a mistake. Those that believe should be careful to maintain good works, for they are good and profitable unto men. But works done before faith and justification are not good, properly speaking. And it is of such I have been discoursing. Works may be of manifold use, though they do not justify. Gold is good, though it cannot be eaten. I do not discourage from doing good works, but only from depending upon them. Such dependence is fatal to the souls of men. We should labor as though we could be justified by works, yet depend no more upon them than if we did nothing. But you say, God has promised that if we seek, we shall find. The answer to this is, it is seeking with faith, which you have not, which that promise is made to. You have no interest in any one promise in the Bible, for all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. For they are firm to those who are united to Him. But this is not your case. You are without God, without the covenants of promise. How can you have an interest in the special and saving privileges of a covenant when you have not complied with the terms on which they are suspended? This is your case. The fourth point under the matter of this entreaty. 
The unconverted, unconverted excuse me, are not only destitute of good, ignorant of it, and impotent, but they have a fixed, implacable spite against it and its author. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Our Lord says that he, is born of the, he who is born of flesh is flesh. And here the apostle assures us that the fleshly mind is enmity against God. But against whom do they have this malice? The apostle assures us that it's the glorious God, the author of their beings and all their benefits. It is no wonder then our Savior asserted that the wicked Jews hated him and his father also and called them serpents and a generation of vipers and told them to their faces that they were of their father the devil for his works they would do. It is this enmity that inclines them to oppose the work of God's Spirit in themselves and others. Instead of rejoicing in the conviction and conversion of sinners, they try to ridicule, slander, and blacken it. To such, the words of faithful Stephen may be justly applied. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Do you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did? It is this also that inclines them to oppose the people of God for their zeal and holiness. So Cain persecuted Abel because his own works were evil and his brothers righteous. And indeed in all ages he that is born after the flesh persecutes him that is born after the spirit. If any man live godly in Christ Jesus, he shall suffer persecution. The unregenerate are as full of malice against the glorious God as a snake is with poison. The fifth point under the matter of this entreaty. The unconverted are prone to all evil, the seed and root of which is in them. Solomon observed in Proverbs 22:15 that foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. It is true that there is not an equal proneness in all to every sin, but for some reason, by reason of their natural temper, manner of education or custom, are inclined to one sin and others to other sins. Yet all men are by nature virtually disposed to all kinds of sin. We are prone to evil as the sparks fly upward. Every sin is formed in our corrupt nature, and hence it is called the old man, the body of death, to show not only its subtlety and strength, but that it is complete in its parts. They only want time, opportunity, temptation, and the removal of restraining grace to bring those frozen snakes to life in active fury. And then the sinner rushes into the most dreadful evils the creation ever saw with brutal violence as the horse to battle. The matter of the entreaty in our text, turn ye, not only serves to represent our apostasy and corruption, but also the necessity of our endeavors after a change. The Almighty addresses us as intelligent creatures. Though we have no spiritual life while unconverted, yet we have natural reason. And this should be used in matters of religion. Though we cannot do what is spiritually good, yet we may do what is morally so. Though we cannot change our hearts, yet we may lament our want of a change. We may with seriousness and frequency ask it of God. Ponder upon the mercies of such a state attend public worship, and other outward duties. These endeavors, when we 
do not trust in them are useful. For hereby we obey God's positive command to strive to enter in at the straight gate. And hereby we put ourselves in the way in which He ordinarily communicates mercy to mankind. Do not the Scriptures say, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Though we cannot merit God's favor by them or entitle ourselves to any promise of it or in any way ascertain our future happiness by any goodness of ours, which is filthy rags anyway, Yet in this way, there is a peradventure of mercy. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness, and perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. A last point, the mode of this entreaty. The first statement under the mode of this entreaty is, we should turn to God universally. All must turn. Young, old, male, female, bond and free, learned and unlearned, rich and poor, turn you again, everyone from his evil way and dwell in the land. The second statement, we should turn to God sincerely, affectionately, and thoroughly. We must turn with the whole heart, with deep sorrow for our sins, in the meantime, forsaking all our iniquities and affection and practice and turning to all commanded today. Turn to me with your whole heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning as recorded in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. That from which we are to turn is our evil ways. That is, such iniquities as we have made ours by evil custom. We must abandon our evil ways without accepting any, even our favorite sin. That right eye must be plucked out or we will be ruined. Nor is it enough to forsake the outward practice of sin while it is loved and indulged in our hearts. The third point, we should turn to the Lord speedily without a moment's delay. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and destroy it if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil. I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good, wherewith I said I would benefit them. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you, and devise a device against you. Return you now, everyone, from his evil way, and make your ways and your doings good. Jeremiah 18. Are we corrupted as was before observed? Then how unreasonable are pride and self-dependence for such ignorant and impotent creatures who are, while unregenerate, not destitute of all good, but greatly prejudiced against it and the glorious author of it and prone to every evil? And how extremely necessary is it to prevent your own and your nation's ruin to turn to God universally, sincerely, affectionately, thoroughly, and speedily without a moment's delay from all our evil ways and to make our ways and doings good. But such as do refer the business of conversion and salvation to a future time should be sure of that time. Otherwise, they run a great risk for a small reward. He's saying, turn to God now. But alas, they cannot be certain of any future time because of the frailty of our present state. Why do they 
then boast of tomorrow, seeing they know not what a day might bring forth. The observation of Solomon is just. Because to every purpose there is a time and judgment. Therefore the misery of man is great upon him. For man also knows not his time, as the fishes that are taken in an evil net, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and 9. If we turn early and speedily to God, it will be a fund of comfort by reflection in after time and riper years. This good Hezekiah experienced in his sickness when other comforts failed him. He could appeal to Jehovah respecting the integrity of his conduct. But on the contrary, continuance in sin not only treasures up wrath against the day of wrath, but makes this life uncomfortable. This is true not only for the impenitent whose souls are troubled like the ocean, vexed with the tempest, and sometimes sweat with horror, but even in the regenerate, a remembrance of former impieties causes shame, confusion, self-abhorrence, and very disagreeable and distressing sensations. Last two paragraphs. Can we fix upon any point of future time better suited to obtain conversion to God than the present? No. There is no better time than right now. For the same equal hindrances that now obstruct us will continue and have greater influence, being more indulged. He, therefore, that defers endeavors to reform his life in expectation of a more convenient season afterward is like the countryman that waited by the riverside till it would have stopped raining so that he could go over on dry foot. Is not the business we have to do for God, ourselves, and others great and difficult? And is it not therefore reasonable to begin it speedily? Especially considering that the more we honor God, promoting His kingdom among men, and the greater progress we make in holiness ourselves, the more God will honor us and give us not only more of His presence in this life, but also more of a distinguished crown in the next. The causes of deferring conversion to God, such as ignorance, inattention, cowardice, and negligence, are a reproach to human nature, and the consequences thereof are always distressing and often ruining to the souls of men. Why will you continue doing that which you know you must repent of one time or another or be lost forever? Is this wise and rational? You be the judge. Is not turning from sin even now difficult enough? Why then will you increase the difficulty by delays? Sin by its low gratifications and fair promises, gradually seduces the passions. And they being seduced, darken the understanding in its views of divine things. Hereby a corrupt bias undiscernibly seizes the leading faculty of the soul, which soon commences advocating for error and vice, and by its sophistical reasonings and false colorings, enfeebles the religious resolutions of the will, and weakens the influence of conscience and natural modesty, the guards of virtue and monitors to duty. Thus, the unarmed soul is exposed as an easy prey to every enemy, and at last, by a course of sinning, 
contracts such as insensibility that it sits in the chair of the scorner, glories in its shame, and refuses to blush. So with the Lord's help, my appeal to you now, turn you. Turn you from your evil ways. For why will you die without Christ? Let us pray. What sobering words that each and every one of us have been under this morning. And you, O Lord, alone know the effect that they should have on us. God, I pray that we would take heed of today's warning, young and old alike, and that we would turn to you. God, I pray that you would use your word and you would use this sermon, that your spirit would preach your gospel to our soul, and that there would be those among us that in the course of the last 25 minutes would have already turned to you in saving faith. And pray for those right now that they are grappling with it, that they would take heed to those warnings that there is no better time to call out to the Lord in saving faith. It, was Isaiah, it is Isaiah who said, call to the Lord while He may be found. Seek Him while He is near. Let him, the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return Run to the Lord, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who can graciously, immediately, and eternally pardon us from our sins and replace it with His own righteousness so that we may love Him and obey all of His commandments. Do this for Your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.